Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, really, uh, we're so happy Easter. We're so glad that you're here with us, that you would celebrate this day with us, a day that we celebrate life, not just life in the end, but life in all things, life in everything uh, that God has for us. It's an incredible time to come together and celebrate that. It's like victory day for the kingdom of heaven. We've been getting ready for this week uh, in, a, in an interesting way this year. For the last three weeks, it's all been coming down to what I wanted to talk about today. We've been looking at how one person, one specific person, experiences the road to redemption. We've been looking at the, the days of Peter, the days leading up to Easter week, the crucifixion, and his failure to, uh, to acknowledge that he was with Jesus his personal failures, what he goes through, how he would have experienced the crucifixion, what it would have meant to him. And it all comes down to what I wanted to talk about today, which is the experience of the resurrection. And so, no, I'm actually not going to read the Easter story on Easter. So if you feel like you picked the wrong church, it's going to be fine. (laughs) I want to talk about how a person experienced this and how this matters to us, because this great event happened 2,000 years ago, and it has power for us today. When Peter fully experiences the power of the Easter resurrection, it is weeks later. And so we are going to be looking at his story, how he experiences it, because all of the apostles, but in this unique way, Peter, all of them were supposed to look at them and see in them us. It is a portrait of humanity, the ways that we succeed and fail, that we lift up God and the ways that we let him down and the way that he picks us up. And Peter's story is like ours. His road to redemption is like ours. My wife works in the intensive care unit at a hospital. I could not do this job. I visited once, and someone coded, is what they call it. It's a nice way of saying they died. Uh, And so it all goes flat, and they'll go, oh, there he goes. Let's go bring him back. And they marched in there. And uh, I broke into a cold sweat and said, I'm going home. It's intense. She's around, being in that place, you're around death all the time because the ICU is where you go and you really need something more than your body to keep you alive. You need a machine. And so she has this amazing way of extending love and dignity to the people that are in suffering and their families that is just unique. It's inspiring to me, enough to make a husband get a little teary-eyed in front of a whole bunch of people. But she just has this way of speaking with family and, and building people up. And I hear from her coworkers when I get there of just how she cares for everybody. And they never become just a patient. It never becomes just a body being wheeled down to the morgue. She has a way of seeing their humanity. There was an elderly couple, and there was a man who was there. And he had been there for several weeks, and he was unconscious. And his wife wanted to come and see him. She hadn't seen him yet. And so he was on a ventilator, so he was, he was messy, and his, his beard had grown out, and he had adhesive stuck on his face. And so Elena, when, when the, she heard that she was coming over, she took some time, and she went in there, and she cleaned his face. She wiped off the adhesive. She combed his hair. She shaved his face and had him nice and presentable. And the woman, she comes in, and she stands over her husband, and she just goes, oh, my wife, she's fighting back tears in this moment. And the woman says, oh, and they're 70 years old, she says, in 50 years of marriage, I've never seen him without his mustache before. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Just gone. And so my cold sweat is different than her cold sweat. She's starting to panic. And uh, the lady, she's so gracious about it. She goes, no, no, you know what? 
I like it. I've never seen him like this before. And she just stood over and she looked at him forever. 50 years married to this guy. If your wife has never seen you without the mustache in 50 years, that stash meant something to you. <laughs> I mean, never seen him without it. And she stood over him and she, was just, she just looked at him, transfixed for a long time. A face she had always known that looked so different. I mean, you, sh- you take a guy and you shave his beard off and you wouldn't recognize me. I could come here and tell you I'm a new guy and you might not know me. It looks, it, it, it looks so different. And she stood over and she just was looking at him and looking at him, seeing the face, the, the lip that her son inherited, seeing the face that matches his little boy's portraits. And it was this moment too where she appreciated actually seeing him in the end without his mustache because it was kind of this way of reimagining and and re-experiencing who he was, as if at the end she still has more to learn about him. Redemption is a lot like this. It's not a remaking. It's not a deleting of what a person was or what their journey was. It is a reimagination. One thing changes, and it is redeemed. It's why we call it redemption and not replacement. We sometimes fear that if we were to really do this thing, if we were really going to follow Jesus and be dedicated, that we would be removed and that we would have to give up everything about ourselves and our identity, and we would lose everything. And it's true, we have to be willing to give up whatever is being asked of us. But Peter is not actually completely unpetered after this. He's not Peter anymore. He's not a completely different individual. He's a redeemed version of Peter. The things that he was like, the way that he was brave and brash, these things can be redeemed, and they can be unique, and they can be different. Redemption is highly personal because God redeems each one of us in the unique, broken ways that we are. It's, Christianity is no thing of a, a stamp identity. There is always a personal thing about it. Past wounds are entirely unique. And so the road to redemption can look unique for everybody. For a person who had a severe addiction issue before meeting Jesus, redemption is going to look different. The way they speak to people and the kind of anointing they have for people stuck in addiction is going to look different. For a person who was raised in a legalistic Christian home and left the faith, only to have it reawakened to them, their their redemption is going to be unique. Who they are as a redeemed person will be unique in the relationships they find themselves in. Bob Ross, in his infinite wisdom, said, There are no mistakes, just happy little accidents. Perhaps in Christianity, we can scratch out happy because we know our history, we know our stories. They may not be happy. But he said this because his solution was, oh, you smudge some paint, put a tree there. Just say, oh, it kind of looks like a bird. Do the other wing, you're done. He flowed with it. As many unique issues are in your life, there's as many unique ways that each of our redemption looks different. And yet we follow a similar path. We follow a path similar to Peter's. I mean, think about it this way. How many issues in your life could be so fixed if you just had a change of heart? You weren't addicted to that thing anymore. You didn't lose your temper anymore. You had a change of heart. You felt different about that family member, that friend. You had a change of heart that changed how your, your depression, your anxiety, the hatred that's in your heart. Jesus' ministry from day one has been about changing hearts. An actual, true, genuine heart change that a heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, can be made into a heart of flesh. That we felt one way about something and we had every inclination and reflex and it was like our identity itself seemed to be hell-bent against something. 
And if one thing in that area changes and all the pain that caused, it releases us to release the level of grace and compassion on people like that that we never had before. Peter was a coward. He ran. He did not say, he, he claimed he did not know Jesus. He called down curses on, on God and himself, said that he did not know, fully denied him. Two people betrayed him on that night. It was Judas. It was Peter. He was one of them. He betrayed the disciples and abandoned them. And I would imagine that he was incredibly compassionate with people who failed and needed to be redeemed. So resistant, so unwilling to sacrifice, and the moment that was changed, he becomes a person who can reach that. Peter has this incredible fear of death. And it was an attitude that proved to be perilous to his calling. It proved to be a serious problem. He needs a complete heart change because he was called to be an apostle and a, a leader. He was called to serve Jesus into the most darkest moments. And he needs a heart change. So we're going to get into his story today. It's probably important before we get into it to talk about what's going to happen. And what did happen, I guess I could say, before, it, before we read today. Jesus has been appearing to the disciples multiple times. He has resurrected and he keeps appearing to them in different ways. And this is one of the final times. On one of the last occasions, Peter says to the rest of the disciples, they're sitting around, he says, I'm going fishing. If you remember, that's what he was doing. That was his career, his life career. So some of them get into the boat with him and they go out into the lake. And on this last occasion, Jesus appears and they don't recognize him. Maybe fog or I don't know, God magic, but they didn't recognize Jesus. He tells them, you should throw the net on the other side and see how many fish are there, and you'll catch a lot. They do it, and they haul in so many that the boat can't bring it in, and they have to drag the net to shore. Peter, ever impulsive, leaps into the water and doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. And what's weird, they have a detail. It says that he wrapped his outer cloak around him and then jumped in the water, and that's what you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to take outer cloaks off. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. So he's just impulsive. He jumps in. He survives, though. Um, maybe if he didn't, Jesus would let him walk on the water one last time to come back to shore. But this story should sound familiar because this is exactly how Peter was called. We're going to get into a story today where his calling is being recreated and his failure is being simultaneously recreated. So guys, recreating the night you first met is actually a really romantic idea. Jesus says so. He pulls the same trick. What's interesting is it's not that Jesus needs some sort of do-over, but Peter needs to remember. He was called um, by Christ and given a commission to lead and to take care of people. And he's living like nothing has ever happened, and he's gone back to what he knows. He's fishing. He needs to remember what God has done and not just go back to what he's been doing. How often in our faith do we go back to do what we know after God's moved in our lives? He does something incredible. He does something amazing. And there is a clock, and eventually we find ourselves going back and simply doing what we're familiar with. God has... Uh, us and not the worst company in the world because we're sharing this with Peter. Are there parts of your own testimony that God has worked that you're forgetting? Do you know why the women went to the tomb on Easter morning? They went with, with oils to anoint the body because tombs weren't permanent burial chambers. 
The bodies were put in there and they were sealed and you would watch over them while the body decomposed. And as years went on, you would go back in and you would take the bones out and you would put them in a box in what they called a bone box. And you would keep it with you to remember this is actually the same type of box that, uh, that Joseph would have left Egypt in. They are going there and they would, people would go regularly to watch over the tomb to make sure no vermin were getting in, that no grave robbers were to get in. And it was this way of venerating. They would pray like candles and it was a way of venerating, particularly leaders, rabbi. And they're going there to give this sense of veneration. And they get there and they find an incredible surprise. Though they're going in what they think is the best way feasibly to be faithful in this dark moment, they're given an incredible surprise. He isn't dead and he's not here. We have to be really careful that we don't venerate Jesus like a dead man. That we go and we do the best we can, and it's like in memory of him, and as if he didn't really say he was going to do the things he did and didn't do the things that he said he was going to do. Easter is a magnificent reminder that he is alive and active, and the things he did in your life in the past are still being driven and are being remembered by one who is living and active. We don't run churches in the memory of Jesus, and we don't live a Christian life in the memory of Jesus. We do so under the watchful, obedient guidance of a living Savior who goes in front of us. If you held in your heart the full breadth of what God has done for you, would you continue your life in this gray and mundane way? Peter's in a trap like this this morning, the morning that we're reading about here. We're going to pick up, this is after they've gotten there, this is after Peter's probably wrung out his clothes, and they've eaten breakfast, because before any hard chat, feed somebody. Uh, we're going to pick up in John 21, verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. Everything about this question is a redo for Peter. A moment to come back to it. Do you love me more than these? Most people believe that's best translated as, do you love me more than they do? Because that's what Peter said when he was first told by Jesus, you're going to betray me. He said, even if they, even if they, I mean, these are his brothers, ones he's supposed to get along with. He compares himself. Even if they fail you, I won't. I'll be faithful to you until the end. But Peter abandoned Christ and the disciples, though he claimed to love Jesus more than any of them. The question is a hard one for Peter, but in his first reply, we begin to see Peter's heart beginning to crack. Do you love me more than these? Peter seems to be learning a lesson because he says, you know I love you more than they do. He answers, he says, you know that I love you. Peter's beginning to give up on comparison and to just love Jesus. That's a really important lesson for those of us that fault woke liberal Christians or Christian uh, nationalists, the things that we label the other side, that we got to quit comparing ourselves to them, that if we really want to love Jesus, we have to just love Jesus and love our brothers and sisters as well. 
this is a status, uh, or this status in his heart as a leader is being dealt with. No more lording it over people, no more wanting to be a leader simply for the status that it gives. In 11 years in youth ministry, I tried a lot of things. One thing that did work was student leaders. I, I, I think that did work when we were, had uh, an availability for it. But we changed something about it. But the first time we did it, we had lanyards, and they all wore these little lanyards that said student leader on it. And I found out that there's a condition I didn't know about, but I heard about it from someone, one of the teachers at my Bible college. It's called lanyarditis. And it's when a young person gets a lanyard, and they go from being this kind, nice person to Benito Mussolini as soon as that thing goes on. And it was like, I thought you could be a leader. So it was like, all right, lanyards are going. Because the lanyard brings out a certain sense of status that goes so much against what Christ said leadership is. It is serving. It's feeding sheep. It's caring for them. Real leadership looks like care. And if Peter's going to be this kind of leader, if he's going to be a leader of leaders even, he's going to need to know this. We actually know Jesus wins this battle because at the end of his life, Peter writes his epistles and he says this in 1 Peter 5. And he's he's talking to church leaders. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears to you, you will receive a a crown of glory that will never fade. This is a significant heart change for Peter for him to undergo. And though I doubt that he's quite at 1 Peter 5 status at this moment in his conversation with Jesus, the work is beginning, and the foundation work is starting in him. In Peter, we learn something as we reflect on how we're like him, that it is not enough to want what God wants for you. You have to want what God wants for you with his heart. It's not enough for Peter to say, yes, I want to be an apostle. I'm really excited because you can get lanyarditis. You can get something to where you enjoy it so much that you exchange a crown that doesn't fade for one that does. Jesus is too compassionate to release the full breadth of our calling when we're not ready for it. God will not release the full measure of a calling if we're going to skip the character stuff, if we're going to skip the formation. This might seem unkind, maybe to some point, that he's being rototilled so much on his failures in this moment. But few things are as dangerous as doing something in the name of God without the heart of God. There are so many people that we have offended away from God because we did that. We said this is in the name of God and not in the heart of God. In fact, in so many ways, that would almost sum up all criticism Jesus had of the Pharisees. You do this in the name of the Father, but you don't know him. Only the Son knows him and those whom the Son reveals him to. God will release the fullness of a calling, but it's when we don't skip that formative time, and it can be painful. Three times he's asked, three times. And three is so critical in Peter's story. Three times he failed Jesus. Three times he denied him. It is important that Peter gets to reiterate his love. Because this hashing, though, it, it, it rehashing, it, it grieves him and it causes pain. It allows him to retake the test. It gives him an opportunity to do this thing again. I have great kids. I really do. 
I actually am cautious to give parenting advice because I feel like when I get a difficult one, I will. Like, my kids, they just, they're not that difficult. But all kids can be at times. And when I have to confront my daughter about something, she's being naughty. It's, she's, it's usually couched in hyperness. And so I have to get through that. And so I'll get down and I'll go, look at me. Look, look right here. Look in dad's eyes. Look in my eyes. And she's like this. Like, everything in the room suddenly became incredibly interesting. Like, what's that corner? And I'd never noticed how the paint matches up there. Dad, your shoes are so shiny today. Like, she just, she won't look. But I know that for us to move past this disobedience, we've got to deal with this now. We have to stay in this uncomfortable moment for a moment and not just let it go. So it's, look at me. Look, look, look. You can't throw your sister off the couch. And that's a conversation I had. Um, it was on a down blanket, thus my whole thing of my kids aren't totally evil. But still, you can't throw a one-year-old. Getting, looking in the eyes, it is, it's Peter's moment here. He cannot skip this moment. He can't go through this. He needs to have a moment to where they lock eyes and they really confront it, and as uncomfortable and painful as it is, sometimes there is that crucible to get from this side of repentance to that side of freedom. And he's experiencing that in this moment. There's something that needs to be addressed, and for Peter to be restored, healed, and reinstated, they have to go through this. It is loving for, to just forgive Peter, but it is all the more loving to let him express his love to Christ and to do it right. To be redeemed in his own eyes. That guilt and shame wouldn't drive him any longer. In redemption, some things do vanish. They see, they, there's this miraculous removal of things. But other times, there is a call to clean it up. We can't say to someone, well, God forgave me, therefore you must. Because part of a resurrected life is seeking and trying to build reconciliation with the people around us. Peter had to reconcile with Jesus and his disciples. The statement is so loaded. Do you love me more than they do? Jesus, I just love you. In this moment, he has to be uh, reconciled to those two. Jesus' experience of new life is that Jesus' resurrection is changing him. His faith on that day is so key as it's being strengthened. Verse 18 says, uh, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter said that he would follow Jesus unto death, that he would be faithful with him until that moment, but he finds that his mouth writes a check that overdrew his commitment. He could not match what he said he was going to do. In his heart, Peter wanted to believe, and he dreamed of being a man who would be so sold out on his convictions and would have chosen to do something that he knew was the one right thing with his life, that he would be willing to die for that thing. And he fails. Peter needed a changed heart, and Jesus gives him one. 
we have to ask a question. Why does John write this story? The Gospel of John is the only one that writes this story. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't include the restoration of Peter. Irenaeus, who was a pupil of John's, he wrote about what John was up to in the, at the end of his life. He is the only apostle who wasn't martyred. He's the only one that lived to be an old man. Irenaeus said that he would be carried into church meetings in Ephesus, repeating a phrase, and it was one of the last things he would say again and again, little children, little children, love one another, love one another. John had this incredible father's heart for the church because he was the last of the 12 to live as they were sending it off. There's some discussion that the apostles thought before the end of their own lives, Jesus would come back. John's the first one we know for certain is wrestling with the fact that he is going to be getting them ready to move on without the apostles. And in fact, the gospel of John is considered by most scholars to be the last book of the Bible ever written. John wrote this after he wrote Revelation. He wrote this after he wrote his epistles. And he's the oldest one to live who was writing. This book, in so many ways, is a fatherly send-off of the things that he felt the church needed to know. You read the Synoptic Gospels, you would think Jesus did those things because all three of them said the same stories. John says there's more stories to tell. He even finishes his Gospel saying, if you took, every, if you took everything that Jesus ever did, and you wrote them down, it would fill every library. There is not enough pages that John just gives you a few more of what Jesus was up to. Critical stories, things the church needed to know as they go into the second and third century. And if they thought the first one was hard, the second one was even harder historically. The church is experiencing a lot of pain. We read this Bible and we read letters from apostles that are alive. We don't figure that a lot of them are dealing with apostles that were dead people they loved. Paul's beheaded in Rome. Others were killed in other places. The ones we have the best record of is Paul's beheading in Rome and Peter's crucifixion in Rome. Paul couldn't be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. It was illegal. Peter was also, seems to be historically, it appears that the Romans considered him in charge of the church. There's no surprise why the Roman Catholic Church considers him the pope, the first pope. But when he was killed, he was killed as a figurehead. And they're dealing with a lot of painful martyrs, but Peter seems to be this unique figurehead. Because if you look at the history of St. Peter's Basilica, the place that it's built on is at an obelisk where it's believed he was crucified at. Because in the first century, Christians were meeting there and praying and mourning and weeping at that spot for his death. Lots of questions are swirling around this. Church is asking questions like, why Peter? Why did this have to happen to him? If the church had parents, Paul would be the stern dad and Peter would have been like the tender mom. You read their letters, it comes across that way. They were known for being this way. The church loved Peter. Why Peter? Why did this have to happen to him? And why would Jesus allow it considering that didn't he go to the cross that so we wouldn't have to? And yet there was Peter. The same record that says that Peter was crucified in Rome. It says that he demanded to be crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same posture as Jesus. And there's a quote from him even that says that he looked at the cross and said, Oh, I've longed to embrace you. Peter faced death without fear. 
Because through in Jesus on that day, he saw life after death. The first time he faced it, he feared for his own life. He feared what it would be in the, in the most ridiculous of circumstances. He wasn't being tried by the Roman Empire. He's being questioned by people who had no authority. But the second time after seeing a risen Jesus, he faced it fearlessly. He was a changed man. I wonder how much John cried when he wrote this passage, knowing the questions and knowing he knew that man personally. And he's writing down something people hadn't heard before, that Jesus told Peter that he would be martyred. You'll stretch out your hands. No hidden reference to crucifixion. John's message to the church is that Peter, just because he was martyred, he wasn't forgotten by God. He is no failure. He was faithful to the end. He finished the race that was laid out for him. And he attained a crown that will never fade. He is no failure. He has such courage because he saw hope beyond all things that made him fear death no longer when he saw Jesus return to him alive. When he found that Jesus has the power to forgive and to heal, to give new life, Peter's redemption ends with him becoming a new person in the power of the resurrection. His experience of Christ's resurrection is becoming a deeply different person. Easter is a victory for all saints because the enemy is defeated. Christ has returned with the keys to life and freedom in his hands from the grave to give, and, to give this freely and to dispense it to everyone. A larger life and calling is awakening in us. I guess the question is, is, what if there was something, something in your life that once glimpsed was so beautiful you, that one would embrace death, even death on a cross for the sake of it? What if there was something that was so worth living for that everything inside of you said that it was also so worth dying for? Peter was not a man who would die for anything. We have a story of where he was not willing to die. But he saw something that was so incredible and a life that comes from the resurrection that is so powerful that he was willing to die for this thing and to live his whole life devoted to it. We who need a heart change have it in the resurrected life. And this hope is still in resurrection. It's still in Easter, and it's to this day unfaded. In the same way that it didn't have to happen to Peter on Easter, it could happen weeks later. It could happen to us 2,000 years later. That we would have a hope that the things that Jesus has accomplished to bring back life, life that isn't just life after death, but life in the things that are in your life, life in the places where you're stuck, life in the places where we have pain, life in the places where sin has given us death and separation, we can have life and reconciliation because of what Jesus has accomplished, that his sacrifice is no symbol and it's not in vain. We don't venerate him like a dead man. We worship him like a living God who raised to life again to give us life and everything we have, where we're going and where we are right now. A hope that is always growing and glowing inside of us. In his last letter, Peter wrote, we ourselves, he's referring to the apostles who were in, who were in the moment he's referencing here, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him, Jesus, on the sacred mountain, the mountain we call of transfiguration. We also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable, 
and you will do well to pay attention to it. As a light shining in a dark place until day dawns, the morning star, and the morning star rises in our hearts. Let us dwell on Easter in this dim world, knowing that full day is dawning. The last words to Peter are the last words to us too. He looked at Peter and he said, follow me. That is the message to you this morning from, from the risen Lord who is alive and his message is, follow me. For a life that is not just worth living for, but if the time came, you would know it's worth dying for. Life that changes us, gives us true heart change, a thing that is a miracle. The changed heart of a stubborn person. Follow me. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we turn ourselves over to you and we say, God, if we have let the light of Easter dim in our minds of the power of the resurrection, if we've allowed it to be something that we don't live in every day, we don't live in this reality that there is life and there is change and there is new hope for us. Would you restore our faith in that? Would you build it up again, Lord? Would you give us a, that Peter on the beach experience when the resurrected power of Jesus comes back to us, restores us, helps us sort through our garbage and gives us a hope that is worth living for and even worth dying for. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in here this morning and you have not decided to answer that question, it came to you this morning, follow me. My question is, how will you respond if you haven't responded before? On this morning, will you say, yes, I will follow Jesus. I'll, I'll reformat this life and find out what a redeemed me really looks like. If you were to make that decision today, I'm not going to embarrass you, call you out, but I want you to raise your hand and I'm going to pray over everyone that does. So if that's you, you can raise your hand and place it back down. If you're answering that call today and you're saying you want to follow Jesus, I'm going to give you that moment right now. Peter's calling, the restoration he has, is a follower who is forgetting the power of Jesus and living a mundane and gray life. That though they, though he knew Jesus, he's living like a man who doesn't have him. This is your conviction and your thing to hand over, and I'm going to pray over you this moment, but if you feel that calling in you, I want you to be praying even for yourself, your own prayer of repentance, your own prayer of confession, your own even maybe awkward moment to get from this moment to the next, that all things can be redeemed. The things you worry about can be redeemed, can be changed. You can be a voice and healing to people who are going through things like you because you were healed of those things. Lord, this morning we rededicate ourselves to answering that question. Yes, Lord, we will follow you. We will remain close to you. Lord, help us not venture far out into the gray and into the mundane, but that we would live like people who are living as we follow a God who is living, a risen Savior who is living. Lord, I pray for a life in this place. I pray for a life in every corner of our lives, in areas of addiction, in areas of worry, Lord, in areas of life planning, of fearing for family. God, I pray that life would pour out of us. Lord, would you make us conduits of the living power of the Lord? Just as Peter was such 
a ministry and cared so much for the church that they mourned him when he was gone. He poured out and he poured out because you poured into him because life was coming from you. Let rivers of living water rise up in us in Jesus' name, overflowing, filling our lives, healing us and pouring into others. Bless this day and fill it with joy with family and friends. In the wonderful name of our risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.